ancestors. A number of years ago, uh, a Christian author named Philip Yancey uh, went down to Yellowstone National Park. And he went there for mainly one reason, to go and see Old Faithful. As the big clock that's there wound down, uh, predicting when the next eruption of this geyser would be, uh, Philip saw tourists from all around the world. Uh, Some, he, he noted, as far as Germany or Japan, crowding around and pulling out cameras, ready to see this natural wonder of the world. And then finally, it happened. For over two minutes, Old Faithful shot thousands and thousands of gallons of boiling water up to 17 stories into the air. And as he watched, Philip Yancey noticed that as this eruption began, as if on cue, then from the restaurant behind him, a a crew of busboys and waiters came, uh, not to the windows, but to the tables. They came to grab dishes and to refill glasses. And Philip noticed while the tourists were ooing and aahing and they were taking pictures of this great wonder, even cheering and clapping some of them, Philip looked back and he saw that not a single waiter, not even those who had finished working, even bothered to look up and glance out the window. Old faithful to these employees, you can see what happened. It became entirely too familiar. They were not at all impressed. Couldn't even bother to look at it. And the same thing, of course, of over-familiarity, it can happen to us too, right? We haven't lived in British Columbia that long, but we've had it a number of times where we ooh and awe ourselves at the mountains, and the locals here, they, they don't really care. Don't have a lot of time. Don't even want to glance up. In Ontario, we had it as well uh, with Niagara Falls. People would come from around the world to see it. We couldn't be bothered to make the 45-minute drive. I wonder if, as Christians as well, we experience a far greater danger of overfamiliarity. As we come to church all the time and we hear about the remarkable nature of the God who made these great wonders, as we hear the gospel preached time and time again, we hear God's awesome promises, His awesome mercy and love and holiness, we can become overfamiliar. It can just sort of bounce off us. We barely can take the effort to look and to consider the reality of our God, of his majesty, and also of his blessings and his promises and his providence and care that we see in his word and that we can even, if we look for it, if we take the time to glance, we can see his providence and care and blessings and work in our lives as well. In our passage for this afternoon, we meet a family of Israelites who, a lot like many of us, they grew up knowing the Lord. They grew up hearing about his blessings and his promises and what he had in store for them. And eventually it came to the point where they didn't think too much of their God or his providence on the large scale or even in their lives. They didn't think too much of his promises or of his people. They started to take all these things entirely for granted. But we see here a story of God's relentless grace, even to people like this who take him for granted. And we'll see this in three parts. First, we'll see God's relentless grace endangered by Elimelech. Then secondly, underestimated by Naomi. And then thirdly, embraced by Ruth. So first of all, God's relentless grace endangered by Elimelech. As we heard together, the story begins 
In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And we mentioned already what had happened. God's faithfulness, him keeping his promises, him making them a mighty nation, giving them a land flowing with milk and honey. But in the time of the judges, Israel took it all for granted. As soon as the Lord had given them a land, they rebelled against him. But from the broad focus of all of Israel's unfaithfulness in Judges, we turn the page and God focuses us in, not in all of Israel, but just on one little family. He tells us about one man from Bethlehem in Judah, in Israel, named Elimelech. Literally, Elimelech's God means, my God is king. And when faced with a famine, and the land flowing with milk and honey, it seems to be shut up due to Israel's unfaithfulness. Elimelech, he doesn't repent, and he doesn't call out to the king who had freely given them the land and so many blessings and promises. Instead, Elimelech turns his back on the king, and he turns his back on his promises and on the promised land altogether. Elimelech, like the rest of Israel, he decides to do what's right in his own eyes. And it's important to realize that this really, honestly, it isn't entirely wrong on its own, is it? Elimelech is in a famine. Have you ever been in a famine? I haven't. Have you ever been really hungry? I've been pretty hungry. But have we ever been starving? Starving and you open up the cupboards and there is nothing. Your kids are hungry and you have no food to give them. That's what Elimelech was going through. And so he goes to find food for his family just for a little while, just to sojourn. And that by itself isn't necessarily wrong. Of course not. There's no law saying you can't go find food for your family when you need it. But of all the places Elimelech could go, we need to realize that if anywhere he could go, he goes to Moab. Moab is not the kind of place you'd expect one of God's people to go. The Moabites were the Israelites' fierce enemies. Previously, Israel had faced harsh judgment when they uh, went after Moab's women and Moab's gods. More recently, the Moabites, you can read about this in Judges, they had oppressed the Israelites for 18 years. And yet Elimelech, my God, is king. He turns away from his king and his king's land. And this is where he takes his family, to Moab. The problem, of course, isn't that Elimelech is looking out for the physical well-being of his family. Of course he is. We should look out for the physical well-being of our families. But the question that has to come to our minds when we read these verses, is Elimelech thinking at all of the spiritual well-being of his family? Our text says they went to sojourn. They went to camp for a little while in Moab. They intended just to stay and weather the storm. But then we went on to read that they stay there. They start a life there. They, they make a home there. And is it any surprise after Elimelech and Naomi bring their family there that their sons even end up getting married there? This should speak to us almost instantly. Because brothers and sisters, even those of us who have grown up in the church our whole lives, who knows God's promises and his blessings, how often do we make Similar decisions, in a sense. We try and do right things. We have 
kind of justifiable priorities. But we make questionable spiritual decisions and try and justify our sinful behavior in this way. That we can make these sorts of decisions because it's just for a little while. How, could it, how bad could it be? It's just this once or just for a season in our life where we're going to put our spiritual health on the back burner. Lord, we think that we know this isn't ideal. This isn't necessarily today. This isn't necessary for this season. What you want me or my family doing or where you want us to be, but it's just for a little while. It's just a soldier. Just for a time. But here we see the risk. Before you know it, and maybe you've seen this in your life too, before you know it, it's not just a little while, is it? It wasn't just a brief sojourn. We read ten years later, ten years, and they're still living around their enemies, God's enemies, Israel's enemies. And Elimelech and his boys, we read, they never make it back to where they're supposed to be. They never make it back home. There's a call here for all of us to consider how we're living right now. Whether we're being faithful, if we're living as we should be today. Maybe especially a call for parents to consider what path are we leading our families on? What trajectory are we setting ourselves? Because Elimelech in name, his name literally meant, my God is king. But we need to consider what does his actions say? What does his actions teach his kids? Was God really Elimelech's king? Was that really the one he was trying to serve? I really like the example uh, that Max Stiles give in his book Evangelism, which I know for a fact a number of you have read. Uh, he had, uh, Mac had a, a pilot friend named Pete. And he explains that sometimes when they were flying uh, alone, then Pete would let Mac get in the pilot seat and, and steer for a little while. But often when he did, then Pete would start carefully checking the compass. And very quickly, he'd start to get annoyed. He'd start tapping on the compass glass, and he would say, almost rudely, you're off course, you're off course. And Mac thought Pete was just being a little bit nitpicky. He, he was pretty close to on course. Until Pete one day said, Mac, you've got to understand, two degrees off takes us to another country. That's when Mac understood. Over time, a couple of degrees off can take you way off course to a place where you never wanted to be. And we have to imagine that's where this family ends up in this story, in a place they never envisioned, a place they never wanted to be. It seems Elimelech and Naomi had gotten off course. And thankfully for us, the good news in this story, we can see so clearly, in spite of their weakness, in spite of the Israelites' weakness, God is still faithfully at work. He is still faithful to his people and his promises. But we also see that Naomi still underestimates God's relentless grace. And that's our second point. But we need to be here for, careful here again, first of all, because we can be too hard on Elimelech and Naomi. We should see ourselves in Elimelech and Naomi. They're not too different from us. People notice that they're off course. And so often people will comment and they'll assume that uh, Elimelech and Malon and Killian's deaths were deserved. But I want you to look at the text and notice there, there's nothing really that hints at that. There's nothing that says that, is there? The text doesn't present their deaths as justice. Rather, 
their text, the text presents their deaths as a tragedy. And that's what I want you to think of their deaths as, and me to think of their deaths as. The author doesn't seem to want us to judge Naomi. He wants us to sympathize with Naomi. This story is tragic. We read quickly in the first few verses, almost coldly, without detail, no explanation really, that Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And then Malon and Killian died too. And what the author says in our text twice is that Naomi was left. The word here for left is the word for remaining or surviving after a great disaster. Naomi was left. Also, the author says something heartbreaking in verse 5, though it doesn't quite shine through in the ESV translation. Three times before verse 5, the author has used the regular Hebrew word for sons. But in verse 5, when the author begins talking about uh, Naomi's sons passing away, he switches away from the normal word for sons. And he essentially says that Naomi was left without her little boys. The authors want us to feel this, to recognize this great tragedy, to sympathize with Naomi. Her dear husband, her little boys, her, her babies are gone. That's how our story begins. We should sympathize with Naomi, especially because we need to realize back here, back at this time, they didn't have a great support system. Widows were some of the most vulnerable people in all of society. God says again and again throughout the Old Testament, we sang about it earlier in Psalm 84, He cares for widows. Because back then, no one else cared for widows. For a woman whose husband uh, passed away, she lost all of her current security. And if her sons passed away too, as Naomi's did, she lost her future security. She had nothing. Suddenly her, her, her life was on a dead-end track. She was a widow, now without sons, in a hostile country during a famine. Most commentators agree that even Naomi's survival seems in question. It's unclear how she's possibly going to live. Thankfully, as mentioned, we serve a God who tells us in Psalm 34 that he himself is near to the brokenhearted. He himself uh, saves the crushed in spirit. And we sang, sang together in Psalm 68 that he considers himself the father of the fatherless and the defense of widows in distress. Here in Naomi's time of great need, we read something amazing just in the nick of time in verse 6. Right at this time we read together, Naomi arose with her daughter-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab, that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. We get a picture here of God personally, God himself, drawing near to the unworthy Israelites in the time of the judges. He draws near to them out of compassion, though they don't deserve it, and he blesses them with food. And more than that, we read here that Naomi, what a coincidence, she just so happens to hear about it, all the way over in Moab. Here we have an amazing picture of our God who never gives up on his people. He never has, you can read throughout the Bible, and he never will. Israel deserved the famine. 
And yet God ended it, and he gave them food when they needed it. And this, when Naomi hears about it, it should comfort her. She should be reminded about the nature of her God, of his unchanging love and care and compassion, and see his willingness to care for and bless even sinful, wandering people. And yet, it doesn't comfort Naomi, does it? We see throughout this passage, Naomi is the furthest thing from comforted, even by this news. And brothers and sisters, who can blame her? Who can blame her? God had graciously given her the answer of what she could do next, to come back home. But Naomi is still distraught. Of course she is. She doesn't think that her home, she doesn't even really think that her God has very much to offer. You can see that in what she says to her daughters-in-law as she goes to head back to her homeland for food. Naomi wants Orpah and Ruth to look at the situation rationally, pragmatically, sensibly. She tells them that there's only one thing that it makes sense for them to do. She wants Orpah and Ruth to leave her alone, to let her go herself back to the promised land, and they to go back to their own mothers, their own families, and them to go get remarried. Because again, back then, that is where your security was. Verses 8 to 13 show us just how Naomi feels in her heart. She feels that security is what's most important, that rest is what's important. That's what she wants her daughters in line to find. And she thinks rest and security can only be found in husbands and in sons. That's where she feels Orpha and Ruth can have a hope and a future. And at that time, by worldly standards, she was right. She even asked that the Lord will bless them as they go and try and find rest and peace and security for themselves, with their own family, their own people. And we even read in verse 15, as they go back to try and find rest and peace and security with their own gods, Naomi says. Humanly speaking, this this makes sense. But this is the kind of two-degree-off thinking that brought them to Moab in the first place. A kind of thinking where they don't feel that they can trust God, but rather they need to trust themselves. Their own pragmatism. Unfortunately, but not unexpectedly, we read that Orpah is completely convinced. She decides this is what makes sense. This is where she can find herself a future. So with tears in her eyes, she kisses her mother-in-law goodbye. You have to think about this. Picture this scene on the road. These women, they're all that they have is each other. They have been through so much of life together, haven't they? But she kisses her goodbye. It's the only way. It's the only way she can find rest for herself. She needs to go back to her parents and hopefully find a new husband. But yet as Ruth, or as Orpah goes, Ruth says, not so fast. Naomi argues with her to be reasonable and do the same. She thinks without husband and without son, she has no future or security or hope or peace, certainly no rest and nothing to offer. So she urges Ruth to leave her. Brothers and sisters, again, we need to sympathize. This is so relatable and so tragic, isn't it? Have you ever gone through a time of deep sorrow and uncertainty? Naomi doesn't feel like life has anything left to offer. She has no future and no security and no hope, no rest. And many of us who have gone through tragedy too, maybe you've lost loved ones. Maybe you've lost parents or sisters or or brothers. 
Maybe you've lost dear friends. Maybe you've lost your own health. We can feel like we have nothing to offer, no hope or comfort for ourselves, let alone that we can offer someone else. So Naomi says, just leave me alone. I'll fend for myself. You go wherever you can find your own future. But brothers and sisters, from our perspective, from our outside perspective, we can see that Naomi, though, we can understand. She is hugely underestimating the hope that she has in her God. And the relentless grace that God has been showing throughout Scripture up to this point and so far beyond. She can't see it, she can't feel it, but God has been showing relentless grace and we can see it from our perspective. And when we're hurting and confused and mourning, even when we're feel, we don't feel it, we too can have security and have unshakable hope We're going to have unshakable rest in this same God. The same God who calls to us later in his son, Jesus Christ, and says all who are weary and burdened, as Naomi is weary and burdened, as so often we are weary and burdened, he calls out to us to come to him, and he promises us rest. Even in times of deep sorrow, deep hurt and pain, even when we don't feel it, Still in those times we can confess what we say so beautifully in Lord's Day 9, which maybe you remember if you're familiar with our catechism. Lord's Day 9 says, summarizing Scripture, I trust in God my Father so completely so as to have no doubt that He will provide me all things necessary for body and soul and will also turn to my good whatever adversity He sends me in this life of sorrow. He is able to do so as Almighty God. Naomi remembers God is an Almighty God, doesn't she? She cites it throughout this passage, knowing it's the Lord's doing. He's in control. But we must confess also that He is willing to turn whatever adversity He sends to our benefit. Also, as my faithful Father. We must not be too hard on Naomi. Because anyone who's gone through tragedy, they can tell you how hard it can be to confess those words when you're in the thick of it. When you're struggling. When you're suffering loss. It can be difficult to feel this heart. Difficult to remember it. Difficult to trust it. And Naomi, clearly, she doesn't quite grasp this confession. It doesn't feel like her confession. But as you continue to read through the story, it really is true for her as well. In fact, Naomi, she doubts this confession so much that she says to Ruth to urge her to leave. The hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Or as some translations put it, Naomi claims, the Lord is attacking me. And so she urges Ruth, just go. I have no hope. I have no security. Not even the Lord is on my side. But of course, of course, we can see so clearly The Lord is on her side, just as he claims to be. Ironically, Naomi turns against God, but thankfully God is still faithful and he never turns against her. By God's grace, while Naomi underestimates God's relentless grace, Ruth ends up embracing God's relentless grace. We'll see that in our final point. Remember again, by human standards, Naomi has an incredibly compelling argument for why Ruth should leave, as Orpah already was convinced. 
Earthly speaking, there is no future for these widows in Israel. To go to Israel is to give up everything. Naomi thinks seemingly for nothing. Yet Ruth's answer in this text is incredibly clear. She looks Naomi in the eye and she says in verse 16, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. As everyone can see, this is an incredibly beautiful response that Ruth gives Naomi. But it's a response that is often badly misunderstood. When people read that beautiful response, they read it simply as Ruth giving a beautiful proclamation of her love and undying commitment to her mother-in-law, to Naomi. And it absolutely is that. But we need to realize it is so much more than that. The true weight and the true confidence behind these words is extremely obvious when you reflect on, reflect on it with me. The part of her statement where Ruth says, where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. Think about those words for a minute. If Ruth is committed to her mother-in-law, to Naomi, and just, that's it. Do those words make any sense at all? Naomi, of course, is much older than Ruth. And it's only natural to assume that Naomi would die far before Ruth would. If Ruth was only committed to Naomi, then it would make sense to say, I will be with you until death do us part. Many people use this as a wedding text. But Naomi, or but Ruth rather says, where you die, likely way before me, that is where I'm going to die. Where you are buried, likely way before me, that's where I'm going to be buried as well. What is, Ruth is saying, what she is vowing to do, is stay in Israel long after Naomi is gone. And that's because, by God's grace, his relentless grace and faithfulness in these pages, somehow, Ruth's compass has been set. And her heart and her mind are set not so much on Naomi, but on Naomi's God. That's where she wants to be. That's who she wants to be with. Naomi's God. Ruth is committing herself to Yahweh and to Yahweh's people, the Israelites, even though at this point the Israelites were a wreck. And they didn't have a good reputation at all. Do you see what's happening here? In this story, in spite of Israel's constant unfaithfulness, you read over and over again in the book of Judges. In spite of even Elimelech and Naomi's waywardness in this passage, God himself has been hard at work. After reading about the Israelites rejecting God as king over and over again, and taking the promised land for granted in Judges, we are invited to flip over the page to the book of Ruth. And after reflecting in Judges on what the Israelites had been doing and what a mess they had made in the Promised Land, we flip the page and we see in Ruth what God had been doing. Likely around Judges 10, right in the middle of that book, of the people's unfaithfulness, God has been so faithful. 
And it seems that over the years when this family was living in Moab, uh, there had been some little discussions in this family, we have to imagine. Probably the discussions about Moab and their so-called gods had come up. And you can read about the gods of Moab in Scripture. They were violent, and they were moody, and they delighted in, like, in things like child sacrifices. And ultimately, their gods were absolutely powerless. And it seems that over the years, Naomi and Elimelech and their boys had shared stories of Israel's God as well. Perhaps it had come up over the ten years and they had talked about the creation story. Maybe they had talked about Noah and the flood. Maybe they had mentioned Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. Maybe they had spoken of the Exodus and of the promised land, of God who had made these promises and then he had come through. They had likely told stories of why they moved to Moab, that the Lord was disciplining his people. And truly, Naomi told Ruth why she was going back after all these years. Because this same God, who had led them out of Egypt, who had defended his people time and time again, even when they were unfaithful, this God had visited his unfaithful people and given them food once again. And Ruth, by God's grace, when pushed on it, when asked, are you really willing to give up everything to go to Israel? She says, I want this God to be my God. Not because everything would be easy or go well. She could see so clearly in Naomi's life and in her own life that that was not true. But she heard about this God who punished the wicked, disciplined his people when they rebelled, yet was always compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love who had given the people the land he promised them, and now was sending a deliverer as well to free them from their sins and bring them back forever. And Ruth was willing to give up everything, all earthly hope, any glimpse of having a husband or a future. She would give it all up to go and be with this God and with this God's mess of a people. Brothers and sisters, how much more should we too look at this God in Ruth Look at this God, especially as revealed in his son, Jesus Christ, and say, I too, no matter how messy his people, no matter how messy my life, I'm willing to give up any earthly security to get back to him. I want to cast my lot in with this God, who is holy and compassionate and gracious and kind, as seen in his son, Jesus Christ. God, in these pages, he chose Ruth and brought her to himself. And yet we can find great confidence in that. He also kept his grip on Naomi and brings her back to Israel too. Although her faith at this time is so shattered, although she's so broken as well. And Ruth says, your people, your people, Naomi, who I've never met, those are my people. Your God, who I've only begun to know, he's my God. And Israel is my home. There's another remarkable thing to, to notice in verse 22. It shows that Ruth got her decision absolutely right. God's land was her land. God was her God. This was her home. We read in verse 22, by God's grace, Naomi returned. God brought Naomi home. But then the author goes out of his way, it's awkward phrasing in verse 22, to also say that Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, returned from the country of Moab with her. Although this was Ruth's first time ever going to Israel, she hadn't even made it yet. 
or she had just made it, rather, in verse 22. The author says she was returning. God had drawn her home. And in a way, this is the whole point of the book of Ruth. In Judges, you get a repeated loop of Israel's unfaithfulness. And you turn the page to Ruth, and you see God's perfect faithfulness to Israel. And maybe after all these years, God's people were too familiar with his blessings and with the promised land, and they didn't see it. But by God's grace, Ruth does see it. Even during this time of rebellion, and God looked and he zeroed in on Naomi and her family during their time of tragedy and waywardness. And he worked on them and he worked through them. He wasn't attacking them, he wasn't against them, as Naomi thought. But he was blessing them and blessing Ruth through them. And here he brings his daughters home. And in their time of need, if you continue to read through the book of Ruth, and I encourage you to, what you'll see is that right at her moment of need, God just so happened to give them the food to draw her home. Naomi, as we read in this text, she just so happened to hear about it, about God's faithfulness. As you read on, you'll see that when Ruth goes in out to find food into the harvest, she just so happens to find herself in the field of Boaz, a man who would be happy to redeem her and her land and would end up being a faithful, Christ-like husband. And as you go on reading, you'll read that it just so happens that they have a son for Naomi to call her own. And it just so happens that while Naomi is standing here in Bethlehem, weeping, insisting she has nothing, and verse 21 saying that she's empty, and that God has turned against her. Right there we see in verse 22 that God had already been working for months. Already Boaz's fields, we read, they were ripe for harvest. It was the beginning of barley harvest. The Lord had already prepared the land for them. And while Naomi is standing there saying that God abandoned her and she has nothing, Ruth the Moabite is right beside her. Ruth the Moabite, who is the ancestor of the great King David, who would bring the people to faithfulness. And Ruth the Moabite, who is the great ancestor of Jesus Christ. That's where this whole story is pointing to. In the time of Elimelech and Naomi's unfaithfulness, in the time of Israel's unfaithfulness, God was being faithful to Naomi and to Ruth and to you and to me. In this time of his people turning against him, rejecting him, taking his promises and his land for granted, God was working on his great plan to send his son to die for you and for me and for Ruth. We should look at this story and be amazed at our God's great faithfulness, even when we don't recognize it, even when we get accustomed to it. But we should pray that we'll never be like the bus boys at Old Faithful who, who can't even be bothered to look anymore, can't even be bothered to reflect on it. Take God and his blessings for granted just because we hear the good news all the time. But we can pray that we'll have fresh eyes like Ruth, who is amazed by this God and by his son Jesus Christ, And we can say to Jesus Christ, as Jesus Christ said to us, where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there may I be buried. And we can confess that nothing, not even death, will ever separate us from the love of God in Christ. Amen.